It's striking to me that after the resurrection, uh, Jesus' disciples have this question on their lips. Is now the time that you're going to restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, uh, most of us in this church, you'll get this, but, uh, but if you don't, you, know, you, sh- you should understand, like, they are asking a very concrete <laughs> kind of question, a tangible question. And, and, and what, what, what had happened in the history of Israel was uh, Israel had lost its sovereignty. Um, uh, uh, Israel lost it in uh, the, uh, the late 700s, uh, um, and then... And Judah, the southern kingdom, had lost it in 587 B.C. Um, they, they lost their sovereignty as a nation. The Assyrian um, uh, came in to capture, conquer, and take exile uh, the northern kingdom, Israel. Uh, Babylon came in to capture, conquer, and take exile uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. And, and, and so uh, for, for the last several hundred years, this has been kind of the state of things. Um, what we all read, and when you read the stories of uh, of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, we, we, we learn that, that, uh, that, that uh, these people from Judah um, who were taken to captive in Babylon, they were able to come back and re-inhabit the city, rebuild the city, rebuild their temple, um, and, and reestablish their way of life. But they were never a sovereign nation again. Uh, they were always under some other king or kingdom, or empire's rule. And they long uh, hoped, and, and not just that they hoped this, because like we all kind of hope it, like you, you, you have lost something, and you hope that you're going to find it again, right? We all kind of can hold out hope, right? They had long hoped, not because they had a hope, but because God had given these promises through the prophets that said, hey, there's going to be a restoration. One day, he says that, 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 that Jerusalem is going to be the seat of power once again. It's going to be the place where, where, where all the nations come and, 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 and they pay tribute there to, 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 to the God of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, to 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 the uh, to the nation uh, as as it were to the nation of Israel that you are going to have your your prominence and your place and your power in this world again. You could read things like this, like towards the end of Isaiah. Isaiah, um, you know, last chapter of Isaiah is very big on this. Isaiah sixty six. So 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 this hope was not just a wistful wish. It was rooted in the very promises of God that they as a people, we're going to be restored to sovereignty. And, 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 and really what, what you get with this is, is, is instead of everybody following Rome's order and paying tax to Rome's Caesar and being influenced by Rome's deities, Jerusalem will be the one that has the impact and the influence over the world. Jerusalem will be the the kingdom or the empire that the world looks to 
and they will be the one who set the influence. And so his disciples are asking this question. They're saying, is that which has been promised, which we've been hoping in, which all of our hope is wrapped up in you when we call you Messiah, Jesus? Is that now going to happen? Now that you've been revealed as the one with the authority. And how was he revealed as the one with the authority? How was he revealed as the one who God had appointed and ordained? How was he revealed as the one that God approved of? Quite simply, because they condemned him against all those things, right? They accused him against all those things, condemned him, sentenced him to death, and on the third day, he rose to new life. So you have man's judgment, the judgment of his own people that say he is not the ordained, approved agent who is worthy, right? And God says, yes, he is through the resurrection. Through the resurrection, he says, this is my son. This is the one to whom all authority is due, to whom all honor is due, to whom all glory is due. So, they ask him this question. Jesus is now the time. And as Luke tells us in Acts chapter number 1, as, as, he, as he tells us this question, you, you can get the sense that they asked this once, but you can also get the sense that this was a question that kept coming up in their conversations. And, and I want you all to see it this way. Um, uh, Acts chapter number one, uh, Luke is carrying on from his uh, gospel of Luke. And he says, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up, or to the day that he ascended, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, by many infallible proofs, he was seen of them for forty days, and he spoke to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Luke says, I've already written everything that happened to Jesus up to his passion. I've given you like a little blurb at the end of my last writing to tell you that Jesus continued to, for 40 days, he continued to meet with his disciples, continued to be revealed to them that this was not a ghost, this was not an apparition, this was, this was a flesh and blood, blood fully uh, visible, fully alive resurrection. This was not a metaphor. Resurrection was not a metaphor. As the text presents it. Resurrection was a reality. And we saw that uh, a couple weeks ago on Easter. Whenever, whenever Jesus uh, appears to uh, the, the 120 or so who are gathered there. Um, on the, the day of his resurrection. Whenever he appears that night with them. They are all looking at him amazed, confused, astounded. And Jesus says, it's me. Look at my hands. <laughs> look, at my, look at my body. And then Jesus says, I'm hungry. And he says, do you have anything to eat? And they had broiled fish. And anybody who likes fish, 
agrees. That's good. I'm glad they had broiled fish for him. And, and, and he took it and he ate it. And, it, and, and Luke tells you this was not something they were expecting. They weren't all going, oh, that made sense. You said you were going to raise to new life. You said that this was going to happen. It says that he began to eat and they're all dumbfounded. They're all like looking around and you could imagine everybody looking at him like with awe and wonder like this is a, a, a life that we once knew that was taken from us and it's been fully restored to us. And, and, and this testimony isn't, I was, I was, you know, almost there and I saw a bright light and then something called me back to my body. I think we've experienced something like this ourselves when you've ran, ran into an old friend that you haven't seen in years and years and years. It's kind of, it's not as fun with social media, but you kind of get it with social media sometimes. Uh, Michael Hiram's. Michael Hiram's, uh, if y'all don't know him, he's the guy who sits behind the computer back there and he's faithful. Each and every Sunday he is here and he is faithful to, uh, to make sure that y'all know the lyrics uh, to sing. And, it, and it, listen, if he ever messes up and you turn around and you look at him, you just need to leave. Because listen, I'm telling you, that is the worst feeling in the world because he has so much stress and pressure and he's trying to do it right. And, and whenever you go like, oh, you missed the lyrics, it's like, nope, it, it, that's not his bad. That's your bad. You just go ahead and excuse yourself. Um, but because we need to honor people who are willing to serve, right? And, 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 and I think we need to be mindful of that. And, um, but anyways, Michael Hiram's, uh, uh, if y'all don't know, my dad, he pastored a church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and went and started that church with my mom, and Angie was six months old whenever they showed up, and they did it in the, the least effective and efficient way um, of starting a church. They moved to a city that they had never been to, uh, where there were people that they did not know, and um, by God's grace, they established a, uh, a, an actually... Uh, healthy ministry that is still going on today, which is amazing. But um, while they were there in Wyoming, um, uh, they met my brother, and, uh, and my brother came from a very broken family and suffered a whole lot of uh, unspeakable, unimaginable uh, trauma in his life. And, um, and uh, by God's grace, we, we have him as our brother now, but, um, but, but he has extended uh, brothers and sisters from his biological family, and um, and through that and through those relationships, we met Michael Hiram's and Michael and his mom and his brother would come to uh, Beacon Hill Baptist Church, and and right before we left Cheyenne, my dad had known that they were, we were going to move from Cheyenne, so uh, uh, we were in a in, in a house, uh, an old farmhouse, and we moved out of the old farmhouse, moved into the church building and uh in the fellowship area and, and used our the classrooms for our bedrooms throughout the week and we, we did that for about you know six or seven months before we moved down here to texas and uh, and into another church building but um, but uh, but but during that time michael and my brother johnny's biological brother ronnie lived with us and then when we moved they moved on, and, 
And of course, over time, you just kind of lose touch and lose connection. And a few years ago, my mom gets a message through Facebook Messenger and Michael Hiram's had seen my mom's Facebook. And I think I have the story kind of correct. And if I don't, don't correct me. Just go with it. No. Um, but he had seen a picture of her in Galveston. And he said, you're in Galveston? And she was like, yeah. And he was like, that's amazing. And she was like, yeah, I live like right here in Friendswood. He was like, no way. See, just a couple years after we moved to Texas, um, he and his family moved to Texas and we moved to Friendswood and they moved all the way over. This is going to sound real silly in a second to Lake Jackson. And for 25 years, we lived that close to each other and didn't know it. And then Michael and his wife began attending the church and it was like this awesome, beautiful like, you're here, you're physical, you're flesh and blood. And, and we still talk about it every now and then. But I remember in those early months, it was just like, this is amazing. Like, we, we never thought that we would see each other again. And, 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 and it was that kind of spirit that continues. And, and, um, and you've experienced those things too, right? You've had those moments. Um, you understand when the father said, my son who was lost is now found who was dead is now alive they saw jesus and it wasn't an apparition and it wasn't an avatar on social media he was there in front of them and here's where i want to get to is they got to not only see him then, they got to return to their fellowship with him. They're eating with him and sharing stories with him again, and he's teaching them again. And Luke tells us he, he began, he, he, he repeatedly would come and visit with them, and he would give them more instruction, and he would tell them more about the kingdom of God, and, 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 and they're fellowshipping again, and it's, and it's all this time again. But, but, but after the resurrection, there is still, when we get to verse number six of Acts, there is still this persistent, pervasive question on their minds. Okay, you're restored back to life. Is now the time that Israel is going to be restored? That our sovereignty is going to be restored? That the old promises are going to be made uh, fully known and that they're going to be fully realized? And we could talk a lot more about all that, but, but, but really all this is to get to this point that even after the resurrection, whenever Jesus is back with them, there is still a longing in their heart for more. And it reveals to us a very important reality. See, what we've done with our faith, what we've done with Christianity, what we've done with the word faith, we, we do it with the word love, too, in our society. Is we, we talked about this a little bit ago, uh, a, a few weeks ago, but we make everything so mystical and abstract. Well, I really, really love you, says the father who beats his child out of his fleshly rage and not out of love. Well, he really loves me. No, he's not actively loving you. Uh, Beth Moore said it a 
few weeks ago, we do this kind of thing and, and in the church and uh, uh, across the board. I don't care across do denominational lines now. I mean, we all were real proud whenever we found out that Catholic priests were, uh, were, 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 were caught uh, in their scandals. And then, oh no, wait, what happened? The evangelical church has plenty of its own scandals too. And Beth Moore said, like, time after time after time, we hear the same sort of testimony. The little boy or the little girl who's been sexually molested, sexually abused by a deacon or a youth pastor or a pastor or just a sound churchman or church layperson. was not believed because they were a godly person. And she said, that's the problem. We keep saying, despite that, they're a godly person. No, this removes the godliness from their person. And so here's what I want us to see with this is when they're asking this question, they still have this longing they are revealing to us that our faith is not in warm, fuzzy feelings. There's this verse in Revelation, and uh, I know the Mormons have used it a lot, and I'm not here just to bash on the Mormons. I'm going to tell you the very first people that I'm ever going to um, critique is going to be us. Us in the church. And, and I, I do that because that's what the prophets did. I do that because that's what Jesus did. I do that because all the letters that Paul wrote, he wrote to churches, right? And I'm sick and tired of us as a church sitting down and going, well, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. And, and, and all those Democrats uh, say all the Republicans and all those Republicans say all the Democratic, you know, church people. And, and, and really, the fact of the matter is, is let's, let's just let, let's take account of what we need to own. I think that's something that Paul is talking about whenever he talks about us judging the world. It's not that we sit up in our, in our, in our, in our booth with our black robe and we're clanging the gavel. How we judge the world is when we go and we say, hey, this thing that the world does freely, frequently, which we believe is destructive at its very nature, we are not going to do. It's not when we sit there and we point it out. Well, look at what they're doing there. Look at what they're doing there. Look at what they're doing there. No, it's when we look at it within ourselves and we say, I'm not going to do it. I think about this. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. How did he do that? What does that look like practically? Well, you know, if you're reading the Gospels, the Gospels don't tell you. And Jesus, as he's carrying the cross, was condemning sin in the flesh. Like the Gospels don't tell you that. They just tell you the story of this man who was, who was brought before a tribunal court and they begin to accuse him and he does not defend himself. And, and, and then they begin to spit on him and mock, on, mock him and pluck out his beard and they begin to chastise him. And then they, they beat him within an inch of his life and then they, they bring him to the point of absolute misery, utter suffering. And the whole time, Peter tells us this, while they reviled him, he reviled not. 
He never spits back, claps back, whatever you want to say. And through him not engaging in the behavior that they were engaged in, he condemns it. And you've experienced this. You've experienced this whenever somebody comes and they have said nothing to you about your weight or your diet, but they come in and they go, oh, I found this new diet and I'm loving it. And you go, well, good for you. We've all felt that. And if you haven't felt it, you're lying, right? I mean, we've all, we've all felt a little judged whenever somebody comes in and they're like, man, I'm just, I, 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 I feel so fresh. I feel so alive. And then, and then because we feel bad about it, we do the skeptical thing like, oh, I want to see how long it lasts. And some of y'all, y'all are on a new diet every week, and so we're justified in having our skepticism, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's like, okay, so yeah, I remember six months ago, you were Atkins, how's that doing, right? In American culture, you can almost just look at this timeline of, 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 of uh, just ludicrous now. It's all the fad diets that have come over the last like 20 years, and this has nothing to do with my message. It's just funny to me, so I'm going to stop now. You know what it's like to feel condemned by somebody just by the very nature of them not participating in the same behavior you're participating in. When Paul talks about us being the church and we are to be the ones judging the world, I think we've gravely misunderstood that as we're the ones who need to go point out all of their errors when Paul would just say, Clean up your life. Let your light so shine. And that light will reveal darkness and it will cast out darkness. At this point, I've gotten way away from things that I need to get back. They are not satisfied that Jesus is just back with them. And that is telling. And it tells us that they were looking, that, that what they hoped in Jesus was more than just a warm, fuzzy, abstract feeling of he's here. And I'm not going to discredit the, the weight of knowing that he's here. But if we are not careful, what we will do is we will put our hope in something that is not our hope. And I've seen it happen too many times. That when somebody's hope is in, and I love the song, Do It Again. But if your hope is God's not going to let my loved one die of cancer, guess what? God never promised that. Or if your hope is in no matter if my loved one dies of cancer, I'm going to feel peace about it. God never said that's the hope I'm giving you. And see, sometimes we take this thing that was this tangible, hoped for 
reality that is hoped for, a new reality, a new order of things that is hoped for. And then, because it hasn't happened yet for 2,000 years, we make it into an abstraction or a mysticism or a metaphor. And then we go, ooh, uh, God's peace be with you. And we go, and also with you. Y'all don't, but some people do. The better of us do, right? They say, and also with you. And we forget that whenever God is talking about peace in the Old Testament, that he's not talking about just a feeling. Shalom means the righting of wrongs and the making new. So Jesus is restored to life. And the disciples go, that's great. We are so glad to have you back with us. We've enjoyed this fellowship immensely. We're enjoying the teaching. It is so, it's like amazing. Every single time we see you, it's like, it's real, it's real, it's real, it's really real. And we are just feeling it just like we still feel it when we tell the story of Michael Hiram's finding my mom on Facebook and going, you're in Galveston. What are you doing in Galveston? She's going, of course I'm in Galveston. I live in Bridgewood. And he was like, you live in Bridgewood. You've lived here this whole time. They loved it, but it was not the thing that they were hoping in. They were hoping in the restoration of Israel, which as we continue carrying on through Scripture, what we find is, is that really we're looking for the restoration of all things. And it's beautiful that in the midst of war, our friends can still sing worship songs. But we aren't just looking for people to be able to sing worship songs in the midst of war. We're looking for wars to cease. We are longing for the day whenever Russian troops go in, do, not, do no longer go into homes and defile Russian women and children. And so, I return us to Psalm 77 this morning, as we read earlier. And I find that with this striking, the striking revelation that comes in the disciples asking this question, is now the time? I find that there is still this longing within their heart to say, hey, listen, it's really great, Jesus, that you are here and you being with me and being present with me. That's a good thing. But we're still looking for more. This revelation that there is still more that they're looking for really tells me that what happened in Psalm 77 is something that will continue to happen to us. 
This is not something that, oh, those Old Testament people, they, they experienced this. But Psalm 77 is something that could still very really happen to us. And, and really, in a sense, Psalm 77 is not just something that can happen to you individually as you walk through a dark season of your life. But really, Psalm 77 is actually something that we should cry because we are hoping for God to move in ways like he did before. And I'm telling you this, when God rescued the children of Israel out of Egypt, that wasn't an abstraction, that wasn't mysticism, and that wasn't a metaphor, that was reality. And so whenever the psalmist says, I'm looking for you to do something again, he's not just saying, I'm looking for you to make me feel better about this horrible situation, although God is faithful to do that. He is saying, there was a time when we were slaves in Egypt. We were under oppressive rule of a pharaoh. He was ordering genocide of our families. And we were crying in agony and anguish and pain. And there was a time whenever you appeared to Moses in the burning fiery bush. And you said, I've heard the cries of my people and I'm coming to deliver them. And deliver them you did, buddy. Deliver them you did. You, you, you revealed your mighty hand to Pharaoh and to all the deities of, and against all the deities of Egypt. And then you marched your people through the Red Sea. Do you remember that, God? That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm hoping in. And so Psalm 77 doesn't just teach us that we might actually feel this way one day again. Psalm 77 with the disciples question on their lips that says, it is great that you are here. It's great that, that, that you are back, but we are looking for the restoration of all things. Psalm 77 tells me that it's a prayer that we probably need to get on our lips again. So Psalm 77 says, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. Uh, if you're reading a modern translation from the King James, there's going to be a translation discrepancy in verse number two. In King James, it says, my sore ran into the night and it ceased not. Modern translations will say, my hands were extended to you in prayer and, 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 and I just kept them up and I, and I, and I did not uh, relent. I was praying and, and, and I would uh, just remind you all that all translation involves interpretation. And so, um, and so there is good reasons why they were translated differently. Uh, but I do believe that the modern translation would be probably best served here for the image of somebody who is saying, I was praying and I was praying with my hand lifted up to you and I didn't put him down because I needed you. And I was saying, God, and I was just in this moment. And so he says, my soul, uh, my, my, so my hands were extended in the night. I did not put them down and my soul refused to be comforted. I could not find comfort. I was seeking comfort and I could not find it. I remembered God. And here's a startling revelation. Whenever I remembered God, I didn't feel happy, happy, joy, joy. I got the peace of God that flows like a river. I was troubled 
I complained and my spirit overwhelmed. Thou holdest my eyes waking. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remember the times whenever I was able to sing in the night. But here now I'm not able to sing. I commune rather with my own heart and my spirit is making a diligent search. And here's what's going on in my mind. Will the Lord cast us off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? And I said, this is my infirmity. Again, you will find a translation discrepancy in verse number 10 between the King James Version and modern translations. In the King James Version, it says, but I will remember. And if your Bible is honest, and King James Bibles are very good about this for being honest in this way, that is italicized. That means that those words have no Hebrew backing. That means that those words were supplied by English-speaking people to give some clarity to this statement. So then that tells you that those words that are italicized, they're not always bad. That just tells you somebody interpreted the translation and said, this is what we believe it to be uh, saying. And, a, and it wasn't one person. It was a group of people, and they came to agreement on it. But, uh, but it says... Um, the, the Hebrew uh, has the, the latter part of the verse about the years of the right hand of the Most High. It says, this is my infirmity, the years of the right hand of the Most High. And so modern translations will say this, the infirmity of the psalmist at this point, he's not yet got to the place of remembrance. The infirmity that he's stating is this, years Can mean years, or it could talk about a change. The right hand of the Most High. It could talk about that being for me or against me. There's a change in the Sovereign One's position towards me. He has just asked the question, have you forsaken me? Will you cast me off forever? Are your mercies shut off forevermore? The thing that is plaguing him, that he's in anguish over, is this question. Has God stopped being favorable towards me with his right hand? Or is his right hand still extended to work on my behalf? Then, in verse number 12, he says, I have all this going on in my head and my heart. So I begin, I make a concerted effort, I make a commitment. I begin to remember your, wonder, your works of, the works of the Lord. I remember the wonders of old. I meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. 
And then he says, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. And that's kind of a weird expression. So what we got to think about is the sanctuary being oh, the holy place, the, the set-apart place, the place that's devoted to God and to the worship of God. And, and anytime you take anything into the sanctuary, you have, to, you have to cleanse it and purify it, and you have to consecrate it unto God. And, and, so, and so you could say, hey, God, your way is holy. Your way has been set apart. It has been set, uh, sanctified. It is, it is a whole other way, and it's a devoted way. To your covenant. Who is so great as our God? Whenever I remember these things, I go, who, 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 what other God has done this? Thou art the God that dost wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thy arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. And then in verses 16 through 20, he speaks speaks of a very specific time that God did this. It's not an abstraction. It's not a mystical thought. It's not a metaphor. He begins to recount how God rescued Israel from Egypt's slavery, from Egyptian oppression. And that was a real thing that happened in their history. And I think there's something interesting to the psalm. You never get back to the end where he says, oh God, I remember all these things and I begin to praise you. The psalm just leaves with him remembering. So it's kind of open-ended. What's this remembering going to lead him to? And now I said all this to say this this morning. We celebrated Jesus' resurrection a few weeks ago and uh, with the pomp and the tradition and everything that we do around Easter, Easter comes and goes, and then we're on to the next thing, and, and, and we really shouldn't be on to the next thing. But, but, but the thing that, 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 that I think about this is this, is we celebrated Easter, and most of y'all got back into real life, and you experienced that, yes, Jesus has risen. Yes, Jesus is alive, and he's alive forevermore. Yes, Jesus has been revealed, the king of all kings. Yes, we believe that 40 days later, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. We believe someday later than that uh, the Holy Spirit of God came upon his disciples and has been uh, carried out uh, to every person who trusted Jesus that you and I are filled with God's Holy Spirit but you and I when we celebrated Easter we moved on from that we experienced real life and we still have this longing that says when is all when are all things going to be restored and if you and I are not careful instead of continuing to say Lord when are are you going to work like you did then instead of us continuing to pray, Lord, we want you to restore all things and make all things new. What we will do is we will make it an abstraction, a mysticism or a metaphor, this whole business of restoration. And what you and I will do is stop praying, God, we need you to come and right all the wrongs in this world and renew, remove all the wrongs in this world and you and I will be okay with living in a world that is so broken. And if we're not okay with it, then we will find other ways to pacify ourselves in the midst of a broken world. Or if we're not okay with it, we will find ways to justify the wrongs of this world. 
and to excuse them and to say that's just what happens. We'll say that about our history. We'll say, well, that was just a different time and people thought differently about black people at that time. Instead of going, that was horribly wrong. And any way that it continues in any, any shape or form today is horribly wrong. It wasn't manifest destiny which allowed America to get all of our land. It was thievery. Now, is America alone in that? No. Do we acknowledge it as wrong? Yes. It is not just the way of this world that Russia has invaded Ukraine and said, we want to impose our, our will and our force and our rule over you. That is wrong. That's the way of the world. That's not the way of God's kingdom. Uh, when, when, when people don't pay you the wage that you deserve because they are more worried about a profit margin, that's really not okay. That's not just the way capitalism goes. That's just not okay. When you lose your cool because uh, your, uh, your, your uh, colleague doesn't do their share of the work and you feel justified about either losing your cool on them or gossiping about them behind their back, that is wrong. That's not justified because they didn't do their work. It's wrong. We will either pacify ourselves from the wrongs of this world, and we do that in a lot of different ways, or we will excuse and justify, and justify the wrongs of this world. Not just the big ones, but the ones that we do ourselves. But whenever you and I hold in heart that we are really, that the resurrection reveals to us that Jesus really is the Caesar of all Caesars, then what we will do is we will be longing for his empirical rule to come on earth as it is in heaven. We will be praying for it. Just like he rescued uh, Israel from Egypt and then just like he rescued Jesus from the death. He's going to rescue this world from all the sorrow, nastiness, hurt, and atrocity. And here's my hope. Here's my hope. When we begin to actually long for that to really happen, it's no longer an abstraction. It's no longer mystical. It's no longer a metaphor. When we begin to really long for this to happen and we are praying for it to happen, then what we do is we open up ourselves for the Lord to say, I want to do it. And here's what you find out. It's not just the senators that got it wrong. It's me. It's not just Vladimir Putin who got it wrong. It's me. 
It's not just the old southern slave owners that got it wrong. It's me. And what we do is we open ourselves to the Spirit transforming us to be the people who do not excuse, justify, condone us living like this world. It opens us up for the Spirit to say, I want that to happen too. And I want it to happen in you. And so it opens us up to be those people through whom the Spirit can be at work. And the Spirit can move. And the Spirit can breathe. And we can be the people who are doing that which this world is not doing. And not sitting there proudly boasting about what we're doing and what they're not doing. Or judging what we're doing and what they're not doing. But through our lived out testimony, our lives will shame and condemn the way of this world. And my fear is, is that far too often in the church, we go by the way of this world instead of revolt against it. And so our testimony has been anemic. We're just another social club another political activist group, another form of entertainment. But we are not the church of the living God. And so my brothers and my sisters, I submit this message to you. That that longing that they had for his restoration be a longing that we have. That Psalm 77 be a model that we pray when we are not just feeling down ourselves, but a model that we pray, that we say, God, even though your son has risen and even though your spirit is here, we are still waiting for your son to return and to make all things new. And we want that to happen. Because the criticisms aren't wrong. The atrocities that happened in this world make it look like you're not here. And we might know that to be differently true. But we want you to be made known like you were in Israel or in Egypt through Israel, like you were on Resurrection Sunday, like you were on Pentecost, like you were the day that I trusted you. And with that, my brothers and my sisters, I say, amen.